I see you collect the scatter of houses that abandoned you. Friend, I see you lick the backs of photographs like stamps and still they fall from your shoulders. In this one, you are young before countries and the children. Sit down, like you, I collect what worries me. Fatherlands are ominous and comforting like the eyes of those who love us. And my city is a leash that suffocates me the further I walk away from the Mediterranean between the buildings. The swing sings its rust in the wind. Neither water nor stone will do. I've given up cigarettes and libations. I separate the jars on the bookshelves. These are for the ash and these for the pickled cheap icons. No matter how much vinegar I pour, the Marys never close their eyes. No matter how many times dawn is slaughtered, I cry when the minarets crow. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. Most of the time, I'm trying to understand the economic jargon being tossed around. Um, I'm trying to relate to the uh, political quagmire. I gauge experts, whether it's financial stuff or even energy reform, things that I don't know anything about, really. And I learn a lot. I always yeah. learn a lot. Yeah. But deep down, deep down. And... Uh, I'm glad we kind of mentioned this briefly before we started recording. I just enjoy a good story. And that's where my mind is sort of focused all the time. Even when I'm trying to make, even when I'm lost in the quagmire, I'm looking for the narrative. I'm looking for the wider picture. And so it's a thrill to get to sort of gauge the mind of a, of a poet, of somebody whose, uh, I think, professional career is based on storytelling. Um, you're very good. So I'm a Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me, really. Thank you. I'll say from the beginning, uh, I well, Joey Ayub, he's a friend, but he's he's more of a podcasting friend. So I, I've never met him in real life. Yeah. We, we, but you feel like you know him, right? Because I feel the same way about Joey. I feel like, and wish I know him, but it's familiar energy, familiar, familiarity. Have you ever met him? No, I met him, but not really. It was years ago. I think, 
and Joey can correct us on this one by then. Uh, he, when he, cause he's much younger than me. He's, I think he's 10 years younger than me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was at my AUB book launch, my very first book, but so what? Oh, wow. And then, and then I met him again in London, when uh, I had an event with uh, Salim Haddad, Nasri Atalla, and Zahra Hankir, and he was also in the audience, and we spoke, but very briefly. I mean, yeah. when I met him face to face, we didn't speak a lot. It was just like at an event, very en passant, and then you know. But he's, I mean, so you're, in a way, you're lucky that you've you've met him, so you know what he's like in real life. In my mind, I mean, it's as if I've known him for years. And I only saw him visually maybe a month ago. We did an episode mm. together. Prior to that, they were just audio episodes back and forth. Mm. We, did, we emailed each other years back. And I think it's when I was in the UK. I was in Scotland for a few years. And uh, he was there as well. He was pursuing a PhD, but we didn't overlap. Sort of just missed each other. But it's, it's, it's familiar, very familiar. And it's sort of my, my way of saying that sort of now speaking to you, uh, there's a familiarity already. And we've never spoken before. We've only exchanged maybe one or two professional-like emails, but we haven't really, we don't know each other as friends. Your, your first message to me on Twitter was Miss Beck. And I was like, please, la. But I... Baleha. <laughs> part of me, part of me is, uh, is a sort of a tricks. I don't know what the word is. I, I like sort of doing that to see what your reaction would be. And your reaction was perfect. The <laughs> Like, <laughs> don't do that ever again. I was like, yes. <laughs> no, but I, it's it's your poetry, and honestly, it's really uh, I. My familiarity with your work is a lot more recent than I think Joey Ayub's. It sounds like he's been in touch with you for much longer. But uh, thanks to Lena Munze, and I, I did an episode with her during the protest. Um, I've sort of branched out a bit into the prose and poetry universe yeah and uh i think a lot of what you're expressing resonates with anyone that has suffered in the lebanese context or for that matter the regional uh story i'm sort of branching off a bit from joey's episode with you which i think was in june if i'm not mistaken so oh. i think so i, I, I remember time has been yeah, time is sort of obnoxious these days. I can't, yeah. I just realized we're in October and I sort of like yeah. my mind fumbled. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start the conversation with just a, a uh, well, just to prove to you that I was listening attentively. Uh, your aunt is correct about buying shoes at the egg. Oh yeah, that was my mother-in-law. So sorry, my mother-in-law. Mother yes, yeah. yes, really, she's correct. She's correct? Yeah, oh, not because okay. she's gonna be happy. She's incorrect in that it's in the cinema because clearly, you don't buy shoes in a cinema. Uh -huh. What she's correct about, and if you want, is she? I mean, is she? I'm. I'm I, I hope I'm not overstepping here. She's still alive. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. so you, you can you can ask her this question. Yeah. Uh, the shopping mall that the egg was a part of called City Center. Oh. 1960s. It's okay. a giant shopping mall. And there's buildings surrounding what is now left of that shopping center, which is the egg-like cinema. Okay. And, and the, the, if you, so you've, you've been to the egg, you know what it looks like. You obviously, you haven't, you can visualize it right away. There's that giant hole next to it. It's almost like a ditch. 
that you ah, eh, eh. that's basically the shopping mall what's left of it that's the foundation of the okay. larger buildings that touched the egg so, so she she's kind of right yeah she bought shoes i'm sure with the <laughs> cinema within her vision I mean, she yeah. probably could have even entered the cinema next to a shoe store so she's correct she's not making okay. things up and i okay, remember that cool. <laughs> i enjoyed that moment in the conversation because i'm literally listening to the audio exchange and my mind of course goes to the egg and then i hear you sort of wonder about that it's the first time in my experience that anyone has living memory of the mall itself i i know its history ten, tangentially i know sort of the urban history of of that sort of part of downtown i'd never heard anyone share a private story and i like that to yeah. me this is far more rewarding and i this is without trying to sound too condescending to the political <laughs> and economics experts this is a lot more pleasurable you took me back in time and maybe we can sort of pinpoint a moment that uh, it's not your story it's your mother-in-law's story mm. but it's an emotional reward that i think you now just experience some, to some degree like, yeah now i know that that's yes it's real and i want to gauge your mind here what is the power of telling Beirut's story exactly? Why does it resonate? Because this is just an ugly building in what's left of a war-torn city center. And who cares if there's a, sh a shoe store next door or not? None of that really matters. And at the same time, it's exactly what matters. I really enjoyed yeah. that moment. Can I just gauge your mind here? Is there something in it, in that moment that sort of takes us back to something that we lost? And maybe that's the wider story at play because honestly for me my, my life revolves around nostalgia for <laughs> a, for something that all of us collectively lost together and I'm, I'm maybe saying a bit too much here but it's always something that we try to reclaim every so often and i think that's the cycle and most recently it's the october uprising or revolution mm. or whatever you want to call it mm. but that's sort of it's it's a re, it's reclaiming something that we collectively lost, even when we never experienced it. Mm. I never went to that shopping mall. Yeah, I, yeah, I never, me, I, me either, obviously, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so maybe we can start there. In, in your mind, is that is that is there something magical about Beirut in particular, or is it just pure bias that we're Lebanese and we identify with the city? So an anecdotal story means the world. Just just very big question to start with. Um, I am very biased. Yeah. Yani, I don't know if I can answer this objectively and tell you, eh, yani, I, I, I dread to sound too Lebanese and I mean that pejoratively when I say Beirut is, yes, magical. And do you know, but friends from different nationalities also have said that, you know, we love the city, etc. Right. And I am not a Beiruti. And uh, uh, I'm from Tripoli. Okay, so uh, that, that, I, makes, that makes both of us. Really? Anjad, you're from Tripoli? I didn't know that. Okay. I mean, Did you grow up there? See, that's exactly. I didn't grow up there, but both okay. both parents are from there. Ah, so, okay. I didn't know. Okay, yeah, you're okay. far more from Tripoli than I am in that sense. Yeah, so I grew up there. So Beirut yeah. for me was always yani, the capital, the, the, the capital and the big city, you know, right. that, yeah. uh, oh, wow, I want to go to Beirut. I want to study in Beirut. I want to explore the freedom of this big city. Like it was the biggest city in my mind, Beirut. Right. The freedom, the anonymity of the, of the big city. Yeah. Uh, and so when I came to Beirut, I came as a sort of a, almost a stranger to it. Uh, 
And when I experienced it, it was simultaneously a city. Uh, I don't know if it loved me and I don't think places, you know, can places love you really, or is it just our minds? Uh, but I, I don't know. It was a place that I, even inside it, I longed for it. Mm, mm. E even when I was inside it, I longed mm, for it because mm. I wanted to know it more because yeah. it was unknown to me. Yeah. And uh, I stayed there for six or seven years, then I left. And I had a feeling that when I left in 2006, when I left Lebanon in 2006, uh, that I was leaving it while I was on the verge of feeling I'm finally, I finally feel like I, I, I really, I'm starting to get it. You longed for Beirut while you were in Beirut. Yes, because it didn't feel like it was mine. It didn't feel, it, it's a difficult city to uh, let me Let me push here. In. And I, because I think I, a lot of this resonates with me and I never really, I don't think I've ever properly expressed these feelings. I feel the same way. And oh, I spent, really? I grew up for the most part in Beirut, for, for the most okay. part. I longed for something in Beirut that I knew was there, but I couldn't access it. And I don't know if this is sort of childhood memory of parents sort of reflecting on things that they lost and maybe it sort mm. of, it resonates. And I'll give you an example. Um, and this is the post-war years. So this is around the same time. I mean, this prior to the July 2006 war, and there's still, despite all the chaos and uncertainty, there's still that sort of, this is the post-war environment. So things are so allegedly moving in, in, in a better direction. And every time something, every time something was removed from the city, it felt like a part of me was being removed with it. And it had nothing to do with me. This could be the lovely uh, buildings that are all gone in downtown Beirut. I never visited these buildings, never been inside. But the moment they're gone, it hurts. Mm. No, yeah, I agree. I yeah, agree. and it's, it's almost like I'm longing for a Beirut that once looked differently and sounded differently, smelled differently. But that's not the Beirut I grew up in. And I shouldn't yeah. have any relationship to that. I should simply enjoy the Beirut that I'm in at that moment. And it, it's unsettling. And you, I think if you fall too deep in that rabbit hole, you become a Beiruti sort of expert or whatever you want to call it, a passionate Beiruti who's, who's li limited to Beirut and sees the world through Beirut. But at that said, and I, I've said this repeatedly, I really think Beirut is the best story ever told. And I think it offers everything to the human experience. And that includes mm. real pain and real tragedy, whether it's through brute force and violence or architectural crime. It almost, mm. every form of pain is possible. And then you wanna capture the sliver of hope and sort of maybe passion and, and pleasure that seems to have existed larger before. Is that the world that a lot of us sort of find ourselves in when it comes to the Beiruti narrative, let's say, people that are trying to express the story? Is it that we're actually, it's almost like DNA that we've been passed on something that was maybe better and we're trying to- It's, it's interesting that you say DNA because, you know, my therapist told me the other day that in, in, in <laughs> genetics, <laughs> uh, we inherit 15 generations. 15. 
15, one wow. five. Wow. 15 wow. generations are in our DNA. That's a lot. So, I mean, yeah, that's a lot. So it's interesting that you say DNA because it is literally DNA on some level. So let's go with that. A lot of what you write about, my interpretation of a lot of your poetry is uh, losing and trying to reclaim your home. And if anything, that to me is DNA by default. It's, your, it's where you belong. Or if it's not where you belong, it's where you're from. And you can't change these things. Yeah, yeah. Because I, you don't always belong where, where you're from, right? right? So, yeah. Is that part of the unsettling story that home is not always what it should be? And that we're driven away from home, even when we don't need to leave, we're pushed away. Is that, is that part of it, that home is too unstable, but you still love it because it's home and you can't change it? Home is home. Yeah, it's what you know. It's where you grew up. I mean, home is home, like you said. Uh, I, I try to write against nostalgia. I see, yeah. Uh, so I try, um, yeah, I try to write against nostalgia because nostalgia mutates memories in a way it, it embellishes what was really ugly sometimes yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and i'm i'm interested in looking at the ugliness as well as the beauty i'm really interested in looking at both so i try to stop myself from being too nostalgic in my writing yes uh but i write from for from and for memory 100 percent and um I don't know if I want to reclaim the home. I don't know if it's mm. even possible. It's not, I don't think it's even possible to reclaim the home. I mean, suppose, suppose I were to go back to Beirut now. Suppose everything was fine and I can go back to Beirut. Yeah. I'm not the same Zena. Beirut is not the same Beirut. It's impossible to, to reclaim it. I think I just write to witness it, to remember it, to uh, maybe tell a story for others in the future uh, to, to identify with, or even in the present, maybe to identify, or maybe not identify with, but at least, you know, uh, engage with. Um, and I think it's, it's like, it's not even a choice. I was, it's just, it's just how I process things. Like on some levels, poetry and reading it and writing it and engaging with it and thinking about it uh, has saved me uh, psychologically on some level, because it's how it's just how I process the world. I love how the language is condensed. I love how the images are wild. And I love how one image could summon an entire afternoon or an entire year. And so it's just how I deal with this trauma that we've all been handed. I just shape it into poems and uh, because I left Beirut in 2006, uh, I always long for it. So yes, I write against nostalgia, but my writing is filled with longing. I, I long for it all the time. I, I could argue that I longed for it even when I was in it. But I, like, uh, I like that you say that. And I think that, that sort of touches on two worlds. You're longing for something that you never experienced. That's by default. I mean, you've grown up in a city that sort of looks a certain way when you're growing up but you're still in it and you're longing for something. So is it is it more than the city's narrative and our country's past that we're longing? Is it something sort of maybe deeper that there's something al almost in terms of identity? 
that we're not able to fully comprehend? Because I, I, a lot of what I try to sort of take from your poetry and from poetry in general is that everything is fluid and the fluidity is very important. So, I mean, it's, it's almost like a state of flux. There's no sort of constant in, in any of this. Mm-hmm. And, and that includes the, the good stuff and that includes the bad stuff. And I'm unaware, at least at my whole Lebanese experience of any moment that we've been able to sort of hone in on something that resonates with all of us. Mm. So we are the most fluid sort of story possible. And it's, it's almost mm. like the world over exists in one place. Is that part of it that we're longing for maybe something that is not so mixed up, that isn't so sort of schismatic, that we are looking for something that calms us rather than makes, makes us crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I mean, uh, that, that could be the most boring poem ever written. That's yeah. why that's why it's not written. But the, um, the chaos. Yeah, the, yeah. You know. for, I mean, I don't know if, if poems always calm us. Sometimes they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes uh, they disturb. And, and, and when they're disturbing, they're also doing, of course, a very good job. Mm. Uh, when you read a poem and it disturbs you on a certain level, you're like, oh my God, even, you know, you're disturbed. When you yeah. read a poem about war and trauma, it, it can't possibly be calming, right? Uh, yeah. But there is a certain, I, I understand where the word calm comes from to you, because when you do engage with this act of I've opened the book and slowed down mm-hmm. the world to read this short or long or whatever poem, there is a slowing down of everything else around you to engage with that piece of writing. And that itself is a certain calm. And in that calm, that calm itself could be very disturbing. Uh, So I wanna comment on that. In terms of uh, Beirut, what were we we saying? What are we longing for? I have no idea. To be honest, I have no idea. Maybe it's, uh, I don't think it's a past me because I don't really, I prefer the now me to the past me. Mm, mm. Um, Maybe, maybe it's, uh, I'm longing for possibility. Maybe at some point in my life, when I was younger and a university student and living on Bliss Street, there seemed to be more possibility in the world for me. Maybe that's what I'm longing for. Or maybe I'm longing for the future that I did not have because I left Lebanon. So there's yes. a parallel yes. universe where if I had stayed, <laughs> yeah. do you know, then what would, maybe I'm longing for that al- alternative Zena. Yes. That's still, and, and I have that feeling. I have a vivid feeling. Every time I walk down Bliss Street, I almost feel as if I'm going to encounter the me of the past. <laughs> like, do you know? Uh, this this conversation is crazy. Is, are are the are they usually like that? Oh, yeah. uh, I, wh- I hope they are. So yeah, so listeners won't go like, what happened here? <laughs> but yeah, um, no, you know, I, I feel like I'm longing. Yeah, maybe I maybe it is that. Maybe I am longing for this alternative zen, and I'm trying to get rid of that. I am really trying hard to stop thinking that way. Khalas, so, so you know, like. Yeah, I, there's you, you're, you're I mean you're touching on every soft spot in me. So I, I everything you're saying makes the makes so much sense to me. I just never found the words to it. I yes, I am longing for the possible me that didn't emerge because of things that are beyond my control. Yep. But I long for it. That's almost like that's what it should have looked like. 
and it didn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's something else, which I, I I'm glad you're you're kind of admitting to it that you're trying to trying to sort of end that and move on. Let me sort of gauge your mind here and allow me to sort of do a bit of mental gymnastics with you. You're in Dubai. Mm. You're, I'm, I'm assuming you've been based in the Emirates for the most a part. A decade. Yeah, since 2006 at least. So let's say for the better part of your adult sort of professional career, you've been in the Emirates. Mm. I've been in and out of the States for a number of years now. Prior to that, I was in and out of the UK. There's nothing I've done since I left Beirut that involves anything but Beirut. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Not one iota of my professional career. I mean, by maybe by accident, it goes into Syria. Maybe by accident, but it comes back to Lebanon. Mm. If it touches on American issues, there's a Lebanese link. Um, and I think that's the curse is that I, I think deep down, I just desperately don't want to uh, let go. Mm. And I don't want to let go of that person that I could have been. And I'm mm. trying to keep that person alive away from the story altogether. Mm. And I, I, I don't know if this is maybe too romantic and maybe exaggerating the Lebanese experience, but I think there's something there at its core that can drive the nation crazy. It's mm. almost like, uh, rather than being a constant fixture, it's wobbly and uncertain. And that's maybe what makes the best stories told, but it also maybe curses a nation <laughs> in the long run. Yeah, and, yeah, I, and I, I don't think it's only Lebanon. I, I think probably Syrians, Palestinians, Iraqis, yeah. all of us that are Mushalvameen all over the world. Yeah, right, right. Uh, it's all of us. Uh, and, and I don't think it's all Lebanese because uh, you, you can be, you can be, I don't know if I said this to Joey. I, I might have said it to Joey as well. You can be in Lebanon, living physically in Lebanon, and you're not in Lebanon. You're not dealing with Lebanon. That's true. You're okay. Right. Yeah. And you can be outside of Lebanon having completely let go. And I certainly know a lot of people in my family that have just let go. It doesn't yeah. mean that they don't care anymore, but they've let go. Yeah. Uh, and you can be outside of Lebanon like us, always engaging with whatever's happening there and writing towards it and writing in memory of it and coming back to it and, and really envisioning that your future would be coming back to it. So it's not even all Lebanese. It's a certain kind of character. I You're think right. it's a certain kind of character. Uh, and I think a lot of Arabs uh, feel this way about their, their homes because our homes are broken. Our home is so broken at the moment, right now, that it may even prevent someone like you or, or any storyteller from trying to, trying to engage the moment. It's just too broken to even make sense of what's happening. I like that you said that you turn to poetry regularly. That's almost like a bias that you see sort of maybe the news and then you see a poem and you're gonna go right to the poem. But reading a poem that doesn't resonate is one thing. Reading a poem that doesn't make sense is almost like there's a blockage. Mm. I had the same experience. And I think it's really related to the blasts, that there was a time where sort of, this is too much. Mm. You can only suffer so much in a story. This is not, this is just a little too much tragedy for one chapter. Mm. And 
all I did was sort of release episodes trying to raise money, donations. That's autopilot. You don't have to think mm. too much about that. Yeah, yeah. But trying to sort of gauge the subject and explore it took me, it took me I think, a month to finally sort of come out of that. I, I don't know if this is the kind of story that can be told anytime soon, to be, to be honest. I, I've sort of, I, I think it may still be too fresh. But have you, as somebody who sort of does this for a living, as a storyteller, have you found a way yet? It's, it's funny, it's two months. Time goes by so fast. Have you found a way to maybe dance around the subject on your terms and try to turn that sort of level of tragedy into a universal story that we can all digest? Or, or is it really still too soon? And is our home still too broken? You can't even really open the door yet. Better to just sort of leave it locked and maybe mm. come back to it later. Uh, yes and no. Uh, mm. No in terms of, I have no idea what will come out of whatever the hell I'm writing right now. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, <laughs> you always need distance, you know, yeah. some kind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yes, in the sense of, um, October 17th, the, the start of the Thawra really changed so much for me. So that when the Thawra began, uh, this is when I could no longer engage with poems. For the first time in my life, I couldn't read poetry. I couldn't write poetry. I couldn't do anything but be like be glued to my phone or TV or whatever yeah, and right. just eat. And, and, and there's also a two hour difference between uh, Beirut and Dubai. So I would just stay up, stay up, stay up. And all I did was consume news and, and be on the phone with friends in Lebanon. And all I wanted yeah. was to be there. Uh, that was at the beginning. And I managed to go there for a few days and come back. And then it got worse because when I was there, a part of me, like when I was on the plane going back, I thought, I wish something had happened that would have forced me to stay here and not go back to my children. Mean, in, Beirut. In, in Beirut, yes. Yeah. Like yeah, this, yeah. this is this was my thought on the plane. Like I wish, I really wish something would have had. Like the roads were blocked, the airport was closed, something so I can have a perfect excuse not to go back to my girls. I mean, come on. That's, right? that's that's sort of you're touching yeah. on. <laughs> but at the same time, of course, yeah, and Haram, my girls, they were, and my girls starting to refer to Lebanon as the Thawra. They stopped saying Lebanon. So right. they, they started saying, Raiha al Thawra, you're listening to the Thawra, you're watching the Thawra. If we were there, would we be in the Thawra? And so it's it's uh, it's I hilarious. Know. Without getting too personal, did you ever sort of extend your stay while your children were like, uh, come back? Did you end up doing that, or was it sort of? No, a, no, no, I went okay. back. No, went I went back. back. <laughs> okay, I went <laughs> back. My husband has my husband travels a lot, at least pre-COVID, and he yeah. had to be in uh, Paris. Uh, like oh, right, so, like I I landed. Yes, basically, yeah. he landed. I left. Then I landed. He left. Uh, so the kids was, are already dealing with Lebanon by default. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and uh, yeah, and you know, it's it's funny. We're mentioning uh, genetics and we're mentioning DNA and we're mentioning what we inherit. Um, I the Thawra made me realize my reaction to to the Thawra made me realize how different my relationship to Lebanon is than my kids. 
relationship to Lebanon right, is. Right. Yeah. Uh, my children only know uh, Dubai as ho- no, they, they they refer to Lebanon as home as well, of course, because we go there June, July, August every summer. Oh, so, those, uh, so you're always in, you're going back and forth by the always, yeah, always, yeah, yeah, yeah. always. Okay. We're always yeah. there in the summer. Uh, right, if right. we dare take a vacation, all hell is uh, brought to us. <laughs> Uh, so we're always there in the summer. They know yeah. they know Lebanon very well. Uh, they know their but but their as they grew up, their friends, their school, their entourage, it's all in Dubai, right? So yeah. Dubai for them is more of a home. And uh, I struggled with that. And then I questioned myself, and I remembered something that when my daughter, my old daughter, she's now twelve, when she was a toddler, so just a toddler, maybe two. She was so attached to Lebanon because she didn't have school. She didn't have friends. She's just a toddler. And so it's all feelings. And it's all Teta and Teta and Lebanon and Lebanon. And she just wanted to be in Lebanon all year. So when she was a toddler, she would come back for two summers in a row and have a meltdown. She would she would cry for weeks, not even days, weeks. And I remember one particular moment we were in Bahrain at the time. Yeah. I, I, I tried to find her and I found her behind the curtain in her room, two years old, crying her eyes out, saying, Teta, Teta, it broke my fucking wow. heart. It wow. just broke me. And in that moment, I thought, no, no. No, she, she, I want her not to experience this. Okay. And oh, sorry, you want her, you want her to not miss Lebanon that much. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want this agony for her. Right. I want her to be present in the country. She's now that she's 12 and that she's, she's, it changes around when she was 10, 11, it changed. And she started, you know, her teta started to be a little bit annoying for her. Uh, <laughs> she wants, you know, I'm pro- I'm probably a little bit annoying for her. She wants to just go back and hang out with her friends, right? And be in her school. <laughs> yeah, sure. And and so I found myself bothered by the fact that she wasn't reacting to the Thawra unless she's a 12-year-old who grew up in Dubai. Right. Why, why isn't she reacting this way? And then I remembered that moment and I was like, well, you're not happy if she's too attached and then you're not happy if she's not attached. Like, wh- what do you want, right? Neither neither situation is is healthy. And or can, I, can I extrapolate yeah. from this? Because I my experience with anyone who's in Dubai, in the Lebanese context, not the sort of European banker that wants to work in the Gulf, not that. The Lebanese yeah. <laughs> leave Lebanon and live in the Emirates. Does it sort of make it even harder since you really never really properly feel at home in a place like the Emirates, even when you spend your whole life there? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So the, so it's, transient. Substance, it's transient. It's transient. So the home is still the broken place, even if you're not there regularly. It's still, you can't really substitute it. Even even with the poetry scene, even with my own friends, every couple of years I'm saying goodbye to a friend who's going somewhere. Right. And my kid, yeah. my kids too, my kids too. Every couple of years they're saying goodbye to two, three friends who are going back to wherever. Yeah. 
we are even here. We keep uh, saying goodbye. We keep witnessing people leaving. It's very right, transient. Right. It's it's not some place where you say, "Oh, I'm going to retire here. I'm going to put up roots here." Uh, and also, you're in touch with a lot of Lebanese. Yani, m- most of my close friends here are Lebanese. Right. So you yeah. live in this bubble that yeah. you know, and it's so close. You can just jump on a plane and go on a weekend. So it's like it's like you. you it's not that you know you've emigrated to Canada. Do you know it's physically yeah. and emotionally and even in, on a communal level, uh, you're still very much surrounded with uh, with Lebanon. But, but I wonder if you, when you go back to Lebanon, I wonder if you also like find your friends there because I keep losing friends in Lebanon as well. Like I keep not, they keep leaving as well. Do you know, like everyone, everyone keeps leaving. So that that is the most visible change that I have felt because I am... I become blind to the misery when I'm away. And I mean blind. That's the nostalgia speaking, right? That's yeah, yeah. it's and it's it's nostalgia, but it's not even it's my own nostalgia. It's not the sort of what did the country lose? No, no, it's my own sort of yeah, yeah. It's yeah. what I personal. sort of personal nostalgia, yeah, which is probably even a bigger curse because it's sort of lost in your head. But that that is something I've seen more and more where I can count them maybe on two hands now, the people mm-hmm. that I consider close who are still there. Yeah. As opposed to maybe triple digit sort of number where almost everyone you care about and any sort of acquaintance uh, is there. Now it's, it's limited. But yeah. that's, that's really born out of the, the last maybe half year or so. It's, it's really uh, before the blasts and more recently I don't know of uh, anyone who's still sort of trying to bet on the future. That's that's new. Do you have any sort of optimism right now with the way things are moving? And and this could be in any corner. It could even be on the sort of minute things that are not discussed regularly. And I'll give you an yes, example. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I am optimistic and it might be uh, to my own detriment because I keep I keep <laughs> fighting. I, I yeah. keep one one major fight that is a repetitive fight with my husband is because he's pessimistic and I'm optimistic. And even in the first few weeks of the Thawra, he was telling me, this is not going to go anywhere. This is, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, stop it. Just, <laughs> you know, why? Why? You know? There were fights. Because, I mean, because like I'm, a, fights. I'm a pessimist. I'm a pessimist. That's <laughs> you know, and uh, and I think when I told him I'm leaving, like, uh, and I told him this way, he was like coming from Paris. I think he was in Paris. Was he? But yeah, I think so. Hmm. And I said, yeah, when you come, I'm gonna leave. And he said, where? I said to Beirut. He said, why? I said, la la, خلاص. <laughs> not i'm leaving you know we see things differently whatever i have to go witness this a little bit but anyways it's because i'm uh and i think i'm an incurable optimist um but i'm an, an incurable optimist who, who who sees who is not unaware of of the pain who right. is not yeah. unaware of the trauma and i think if we have to use the word hope then it has to be undoubtedly a very difficult word to use. People uh, usually think that despair, uh, that hope is easy and despair is difficult. I think despair is uh, easier 
than hope. And I was there physically. I was there in 2005. So I was there when Hariri was assassinated and I went to the protests in 2005 and I remember the feeling of, oh my God, there's a million of us. I I remember the feeling and I remember it was also high. Uh, But what happened in 2019 is is much better, although I wasn't in it the first day. Uh, I think it's much better because, uh, so each time there's something, I feel that each time something more is learned. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, and again, you know, if you're a politician, if you're not a political writer listening to this saying how stupid she is, I probably am. But, you know, this is how I, I as a poet, I, I analyze it. So in, t- I, in I, assure, 2000- I assure you, no one is saying that. I assure you. Okay. Yeah. So, and because I, I sometimes I get I'm like, why are you talking? What do you know? But <laughs> uh, my feeling is that in 2005, the main, uh, the main achievement, if you want to call it an, ach- uh, you know, if you want to call an achievement, uh, is, and of course it's an achievement, is that Syria was uh, driven out of Lebanon. That's the main achievement, right? But the narrative state, the binary narrative state. Yeah. which is like 8, uh, uh, eight uh, March versus 14 March. Th- they were still there on the podiums speaking to us, yeah. okay? Yeah. So we didn't, we don't throw that out the window. Right. Whereas in 2019, there was kullum yani kullum, khalas. Yani, uh, there are people, the people were swearing, like the helaho, the, like even the swear, even the profanity is some kind of liberation because oh, sure. finally... Yeah. Finally, people, you know, I'm seeing on, on TV or I'm seeing at least on social media how people really speak. This is how we talk, you know, like, no, do you know that it's not a different persona of someone who is speaking. So uh, there was Kilon Yani Kilon, there was the it's, profanity, it was, there it was, was poetry on the streets. I mean, it was, it's. The population. Yes, was, yes. And yeah. then there were the tents and the discussions that started sprouting. And there was the fact that it was not centralized. Yani, Anna, I'm sure. from Trablos, right? Yeah. I never yeah. felt that Tripoli was implicated. I felt everything that happened in terms of protests happens in Beirut. The main protests, yeah. right. the right. main Haida happen in Beirut, not in Tripoli. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first time I felt Tripoli was not only implicated, but so highlighted was in 2019. Not just Tripoli, but other cities and villages and towns as well. So this decent, it's an achievement. Do you know if we if we want to go back to all of this? Of course, yeah, yeah. That's actually, that's why I think the only occasion in, in recent memory where the entire country stood up for a few days, Tripoli to- I couldn't Nabatiye. believe that it was Tripoli I was looking yeah. at. I was, in, I was in London, I had woken up, I looked at my screen. Uma, I didn't know that this was Sihta Noor. I, I didn't realize. Yeah. And I was like, Shoo? Trablos? It's like, oh my God. But let me ask what? you, so, and since we both sort of, I, I'm guessing we're roughly the same age because we have sort of the shift. I'm 39, there you go. turning 40 in April. Aries, what are you? 39, turning 40 in June. Gemini. Gemini. <laughs> hey, that's better than Sunni. Troubles. <laughs> <laughs> Thirty-nine. No, yeah, I'm, I'm all for. I'm all for. Yeah, yeah, yeah the horoscope. You're the famous eighties from the north, and uh, the Gemini. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, I, what you're saying is, I, I'm glad because it's it's easy to forget. I think that yeah, there is a neighboring regime that managed our affairs for a long time 
not a friendly sort of you know benevolent exchange of ideas this was a very we couldn't talk on phones and i remember i was very very little my mom used to tell me don't say anything on the phone i was i was 10 yani but no you grew up with troubles em al harib so you yes. used, yeah so ana ana i was in the states kan every year fil safi we'd go through syria to tripoli Mm. This is the days of the Green Line. You couldn't land in Beirut and go north. Mm-hmm. Land in Damascus and go around. Sort of mm. loop around to Tripoli. Okay. Well, I remember this. I mean, Surat Hafiz al-Assad. I mean, looking at it too long, you, you'd have people <laughs> sort of like, you know, don't look at his picture too long. Like, yeah. It's a photo. Or point. Yeah. Don't, or, don't yeah. point. Exactly. Don't point at the mm. photo. Mm. Serious intimidation. And Tripoli, I mean, the civil war ended a few years. I'm ago. afraid even now. Wallahi, I'm afraid yeah. even now when you're yeah. there. I'm like, oh, let's not, you know, am I, fr- am I, fr- am I still scared? You know, yeah. Seriously. Yeah, I think it's it's permanent. I think it's permanent. And it, it shows just how severe the intimidation was back then. But Trablus, 1985, more or less, more or less, the civil war ended. So there were a few years where Tripoli was safer than, than Beirut and the rest of the country. It was under Syrian mm. rule. But but I, I I remember growing up, 1990s, Beirut, Lebanon, where it seemed like a miracle that we would be able to intimidate the Assad regime to withdraw. It was a miracle, yeah, yeah. No. It was a, this will never yeah. happen in our lifetime, mm. and then it happened. So it's mm. a major achievement, and people broke their fear. People were saying for the first time in nearly three decades. that they should leave and they should Syria go. out yeah no and i remember yeah. walking down from my house on bliss to uh, martyr square yeah. and everyone was slowly walking down the street and i don't even think i think i met friends there eventually but i sort of went out of the apartment by myself and there were just these people walking and i followed them yeah. and yeah. i remember thinking is no one going to come for us Is no one really? Is no one? Is there not? Is there? Are there not going to be like car bombs? And of course, there were car, more car bombs, yeah, right? Course, after yeah. after that, Samir Asir is is one of them. Yeah. So, uh, so I remember thinking, like, are we really doing this? You know, uh, are But we the, all going to get killed? Well, well, what <laughs> so, you just yeah. said, what you just said, is what I was actually I, I was going there as well. That yes, it's a major achievement to intimidate a. very difficult arrangement and then sort of detach but then the worst sort of traits of those years multiplied and that includes assassinations that includes more war that includes almost an, almost we flirted with civil war in 2008 and then it's almost like it doesn't didn't matter that that regime withdrew things stagnated and things got yeah. worse and worse and worse And then in 2015, you have this giant sort of uprising mm. saying that corruption and mismanagement and the trash, it felt good to be back on the streets. And then the trash crisis grew and grew and grew. Environmental degradation got worse and worse and worse. The state really collapsed. 2019, it's that exactly what you said. It's against all odds. half the country's population rising up together it's not just beirut had it just been beirut it wouldn't be a story it's the whole mm-hmm. country here we are though 
almost a year since October 17. And it's hard to imagine going back to October 16. And that's not the place we want to be. It's not like that's the benchmark. But now, I can't even imagine October 16. That's what we were rejecting. So I'm, I'm curious about the positives aside. And I know, I know there's many positives, and maybe it's worth noting them a little later. But this sort of trait of, despite all the odds, rising up, reaching a point that's more uncertain, more chaotic, more problematic. Yeah. And I ask you this as a storyteller. I know you're not a political analyst. I know that and you've mm. made, you made that clear already. <laughs> but I'm asking as a storyteller, this is a very tragic story to even try to comprehend and share mm. because it's not like there's, there's no, you want sort of that, you want the end to be. Yeah, you, you want closure, right? You're on some kind of closure, some kind of conclusion. You're not going to get it, not want, in the near future. <laughs> you, want, you want justice. You want justice. And we're robbed yeah. of that. We're no, robbed of that. Yeah, yeah. Not, not in the near future. Yeah, uh, we're gonna have to, and it's not. Uh, it, it won't be up to us outside of Lebanon. It will be up to the people uh, inside of Lebanon organizing, yeah. and uh, maybe unionizing, and maybe learning uh, from that uh, if they can. In 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 all the trauma that they're in now after the explosion, my God, and in a pandemic, like what else? What's left? What else? How can it get worse? Right? So. Uh, I don't think anyone has any answer. I, I think people can analyze and uh, whatever. I think uh, for now, we just have to be attempt to be content with the fact that there is no end, no closure, and no healing. There is just learning how to sit with the wound. Just <laughs> to sit with it. It's almost like you would want things to move faster because things really seem like they're stuck in limbo. And you're yeah, describing- yeah. People are tired. People are tired. Yeah. People are traumatized. People are hungry. People don't have money. I mean, uh, people are, uh, can't afford meat. Uh, the, uh, the situation is, uh, uh, no, I know a lot of people who, you know, the only, the only way that some, uh, people, our parents' generation could survive is by having their kids abroad send them some dollars, you know, yeah, some fresh exactly. dollars so they yeah. can, yani, uh, you're supposed to be, our parents' age are supposed to be at an age where yani, they, they don't have to struggle, struggle like this anymore. Or scabs should turn into scars and you learn to live with them, but rather we don't have that. It's just a scab that won't heal. It's an it's, open wound. It's open just wound. like it keeps opening, and it's yeah. you know someone when it starts to it, someone just slashes it. You know, someone just opens it. Absolutely, again. Zena. I want to I want to ask you a personal question here because I've I've read some of your poetry recently, and I reread it, and after sort of and thank you, thank you for reading the the long one, the the, <laughs> the, the crown of sonnets. That's a long one, so thank you. Are you referring to a poem beginning and ending with my birth? With my birth, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So I'm I'm. This is me sort of using my imagination. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. And I'm going okay. to quote you to you. This is the introduction to the poem. <laughs> I'm doing you injustice by sharing your poetry, but I'll just, I'll take liberty. No, here. no, please. Yes, yes. Do, do, do. My mother says, I sure was heaven sent and determined on making her life hell. Cried every afternoon and not one spell worked. 
She rocked, she sang, made all the attempts of two young mothers. Don't they say the scent of a mother's neck and her voice soothe well? All right, so for me, this is not about a mother. <laughs> this is about much more. And I'm gonna ask you, are, are you referring to something that's maybe a collective sort of, uh, a collective maybe treasure or maybe even a collective uh, power that we're, uh, we're yearning for? Because I, 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 when I read these sort of words, I don't see it as a mother and a child. I see it more as uh, maybe um, what we're born into. And it's, it's the country at large, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the whole long poem uh, is at the intersection of the personal and the political. The personal and the political are always together. Sort of tied, yeah, right. This particular, uh, I'm, I, I really like your interpretation, but I have to be honest that when I sat down to write it, this wasn't what I was thinking about. Hmm. Uh, uh, it's a literal story that my mother used to tell me. So it really is. Uh, it really is my mother who used to tell me that I was inconsolable yeah. in the afternoon and she didn't know why. And even when I grew up, I hated the afternoon. The afternoon is the period I hated most. Now I'm kind of finding my peace with it. But I remember <laughs> even when I was a teenager, I used to say, I hate the afternoon. I hate the afternoon. And she used to say, well, you know, as a little girl, as a little child, child newborn you you used to cry not, nothing would shut you up mm. and then what i ultimately found would shut you up is that i would put you in a chair put a, like a tushot, a bowl of water in front of you give you a newspaper and you tear you tear the newspaper and throw it in the water and this is where the political comes in this is when i went while i was writing this story that my mother used to tell me i thought it's very interesting that what calmed me was staring at words. Hmm. And I was staring at news right. from a newspaper. And then the second stanza right after it, it's, uh, it, it, it immediately references the civil war, right? It picks up on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it started as uh, me remembering this. And of course, it evolved uh, in the writing of the poem. It evolved into the political and, and, and. I, I read it as, and I, it's maybe because I'm, I'm pushing my own feelings on it. I, res, I read it as a protester growing up and learning their way and sort <laughs> of uh, finding, finding their footing and trying to sort of become an independent body, sort of taking hold. Yeah, and no, no longer yeah, dependent. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I certainly was a protesting child, that's for sure. Right. So I right. wasn't an easy child, which is why, you know. <laughs> I like that. made her life hell. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a very complicated poem in terms of like all the intersections. I think Tripoli is a character in the poem. Uh, Tripoli is almost another character in this poem. Yeah. I reference uh, an archbishopric that was, uh, because I'm saying this because I know you like places, right? So I, I have a reference, an archbishopric, Mutrani, uh, that was yeah. uh, right, uh, right behind our house. So from the balcony in the kitchen, I used to look into it and see it and imagine just playing there, there in this like empty space. Yeah. And there's a school next to it. I reference the train abandoned in the grass in Tripoli. Right, yes. Uh, so I feel that Tripoli is almost a character in the poem. Uh, the war is there. And also three generations of mothers are there. Uh, my grandmothers, 
my mother and myself as a mother and now my daughters, which aren't mothers yet, but you know, three generations of mothers and one generation of girls, if you want. So there's a very, a lot of, uh, it's full of female energy as well. Uh, uh, matriarchal like- energy, if, if, if you will. But you, you were uh, shattering an image, which is good. And I think this began with the protests. I mean, it's it began among Tripoli's residents long ago, but it really sort of took off in Lebanon on October 17, which is that, I mean, screw all the stereotypes about Tripoli. My relationship to Tripoli is really one that I've learned over time from my parents and my, my grandparents. My grandmother, still alive, the best storyteller I know. She speaks of a Tripoli that just doesn't exist. Yeah, the the orange is it the oranges? Because I've never seen the oranges. I've never smelled the oranges. <laughs> I've never smelled them. the oranges. Yeah. I mean, yeah. where where are these orange trees, right? Yeah, but, but it's yeah. it's so vivid in her memory. Yeah. And it's like the default that that is Tripoli. That's not the Tripoli I know. Uh, I have relatives who always reminded me that yes, they went to they went to missionary schools. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. My mom went to Rahbet. Rahbet, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The Tripoli Uh, Boys School, the other sort of Protestant. Frere, Frere, yeah, yeah. 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 And that's that's not in the sort of sort of uh, whatever hip part of Tripoli. This used to be Tibene. No, all over, all over, all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I I wonder though, is that as, as somebody you grew up in Tripoli, and maybe you have a more intimate relationship with it. Do you need to grow up in an environment where everyone's always talking about sort of something that just happened, but you don't even have any access to it that can create an imagination? Because I'm curious what took you sort of somebody who's maybe they're maybe they're still very passionate, albeit not in Lebanon, about the Lebanese story. What drove you to poetry? Is it that sort of forced imagination of your own place and your own sort of being in Tripoli? Or is it something that you sort of like stumbled into by chance? Because your poetry is very, very personal. And and whenever you can, and I've sort of, by accident, I pick up on this. Yeah, you do make a Tripoli cameo. <laughs> it is sort of your own home. It's not sort of a collective home, it's it's Tripoli. So is it is it the city itself that drove you to poetry? Or did you really find your own way in, in, in poetry? Um, that's a question like who knows, but I, I don't think so. I think no. uh, I think we are born uh, poets. We are born writers. We are born storytellers. It's just something you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something maybe you won't end up doing, but it's something you innately, instinctively love. Yeah. Uh, I think my mom is a poet. I think my aunt is a poet. Uh, they never got to write and publish or whatever, but in their spirits, in their heart, in the way they speak, and and in the way they tell stories. Uh, that's poetry Uh, uh, I think the sounds of the streets definitely the sounds of the old street where we used to live and I go back to them all the time and I think uh, I was always interested in that the life of of that street I grew up in in Tripoli, an old street Uh, but I think I was born a storyteller Uh so Tripoli really is just the background it's not the uh, the driving Uh, 
Uh, no, I just I instinctively loved uh, when they when they used to give us homework to memorize a poem. That was my favorite thing ever. I instinctively mm -hmm. instinctively loved to memorize the poems, and then I also instinctively performed them. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't just stand up and say a poem. I would act it out. No one told me that. I yeah. was very very young. So. Uh, and I used to be taken from class to class to recite. Oh, really? Uh, oh, they, yeah. would, they would bring you? Parade me, yeah, from oh, class wow. to class around <laughs> the school. That's not bad. Uh, but I also used to dance and, and act and sing. So I think there's a performer in me. Uh, and then there's also someone whose relationship to language is very, I loved words. I always loved like, what does this word mean? And why does it mean something else? And why does it sound this way? And how come if you put it in this sentence, this is the meaning that you, you know, like I've always uh, loved words and, and memorized words very, very quickly. Uh, so I used to, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't a very avid reader, really, we didn't have that much of a library in our home, you know. Uh, I, I used to read whatever the school assigned. Uh, but I used to memorize everything. Yani, uh, the Sherihan songs on TV I memorized, the ads. I used to, <laughs> I used to, sometimes the, I used to entertain a family by performing ads for them, like ads on TV. <laughs> so you've been, uh, so you, in a way you're like, you're meant to be in this world by default. It's not so much the... Uh, the, the... So, yeah, the word of words always yeah, fascinated yeah. me. Fascin I love I love the theater so much. And mm. I think if I hadn't left Beirut early on, I would have probably continued in uh, the theater life there as well. Okay. Uh, and I always joke that, you know, I couldn't be a Asa, turned out to be a poet because I truly wanted to be like this is even like I wanted to be a Ra'asa and I, I I said to my dad like once I was very young and they said Zena what do you want to be when you grow up and I said Ra'asa <laughs> and uh, and my dad's like la ya baba la ya baba kif baba la and this is where the dream was crushed and so I became a poet instead this is the joke that was like the next best thing uh, so, I think, but yeah. I think who you... knows what drives us, right? Who knows? What, I think we all have something in us, and fate, and chance, and decisions, and people we meet, and cities we travel to end up playing this random role in either steering us this way or steering us that way. I could have never have published. I could have been a lawyer in a parallel universe. I don't know, uh, but that interest in the word and that interest in, in storytelling is there, uh, was there from the beginning. For me, and I'm an amateur, compared to, compared to you, I'm an amateur, but in, in, compared to anyone, I'm an amateur. I think it's limitations. So I think when you're in an environment that does not allow you to fully grow, but you're growing, I think you find ways of growing despite all the pressure not to. Mm. And one, for me at least, uh, and I'm going to sort of take it back to Tripoli, my earliest memories in life are in Tripoli. Mm. That includes what? the... What are they? <laughs> they're everything that is great and, and horrible in Lebanon. I'll give, you just, I'll give you two examples. The great is, she'll hate me if she watches this, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so she'll really be upset. I have an aunt. She'll, and she'll deny this. I have an aunt <laughs> who uh, I may have been five or 
maybe maybe four, five, a very young kid watching. And you you said something on Joey Ayub's podcast. It like the old the old jingo for LBC News. Be al Harib. Means Harib. Hey, for yeah. me, it's Harib. So whatever you're gonna watch is bad news. It's going to be either Jaja or some like you know Betty Karami is about or Aish Karami or whoever Salim al Hus be Beirut Hakim Jabal and and that's for me. It's like I'm a five year old. I shouldn't even know who these people are. Yeah. My aunt is smoking a cigarette at the salon. Like whatever, some neon light dangling. Jaja. 1980s Jaja, not the uh, yeah. yeah, renegade Jaja. And sort of she's smoking her cigarette, you know, listening to what he's saying. I'm like, mean hey though. And she's sort of next to me. And she's like saying, I'm like, and she sort of just puts a cigarette in my mouth and I'm like <laughs> yeah this is a mischievous aunt just sort of you know screwing around with her sister's kids and I'm coughing and coughing with Jaja you know on TV I'm like okay it's I guess called family love I don't know yeah 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 there's that memory vivid memory of uh, mm. of just family interactions and sort of mischief mischief she was laughing yeah. having a great yeah time. yeah the other one is probably 1985 or 86. So the Civil War is ending in Tripoli, but it's still, it's maybe the last sort of last stretch. 1985, a car bombing right next to the building. So my grandmother's ah, okay. just at the intersection, there was a big Syrian checkpoint. Shera Munla. So Abel Mustashfa Munla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hassan. There's that Msalbi. There used to be a big checkpoint there during during the war. Mm. And uh, she went down. And we assumed she was dead. Because mm. she had gone down minutes before the car bombing. So we just mm. all of us thought she died. Mm. And we're panicking. We're scrambling. It's a lot of glass and smoke and fire and death. Why not come in? I'm still around five years old, you know? About his cigar of Ajaja or something, right? Like this nightmare city, Tripoli. And everyone's screaming and shouting. She's like, What's all the noise? I'm like, Get in here, get in here. There's that. I mean, going to Palma, B.E.M. Al Harib. Sort of oh my God! You used to go to Palma. I went to Palma. For, I grew up in Palma. I grew up. We went there. You know, we went there all the time. Yeah. yeah. And and the, but it's important also because Palma for us was the limit. You wouldn't go beyond Palma. Mm. Maybe one day, you know, the Muffy, a lot of bad stuff happening. You'd think about crossing further, but. I mean, Enfi, Betrun, Shikka, these were no-go zones. It's like Palma. Yeah, I don't remember any of this. I just remember being a child in Palma. And by the time... uh, by the time I was a teenager, we used to go to other beaches as well and play basketball and volleyball. Yeah, there was that, that uh, Naji beach or whatever next to it. Naji, Manara. Manara, uh, Manara. 
مش المنارة مير ميرامار في ميرامار كمان بعدين ميرامار از نيو منارة از اولدر ناعورة مير نير بس دي سو ذات تو مي واز ذا بلايفول سايد we'd hear the fighting sometimes in the in the background but mm-hmm. you're sort of it's a little lighter and there's kids and there's swimming pools there's the beach but most mm-hmm. importantly most importantly there's the sea well my memories of childhood linked to Tripoli there's always the sea yes absolutely yeah you can experience the sea in Tripoli it is part of the city Yeah, I couldn't comprehend the sea in Beirut when I went there. That's exactly, I, exactly. I was yes. like, you swim here? Yeah. In this shit? Right. What? Uh, yeah. I couldn't comprehend it. Yeah. Uh, and and also you can grow up in Beirut and you miss the coast altogether. And Beirut today is so messed up urban sort of planning wise. Mm. The sea is limited. Mm. Tripoli at least in the 80s and the early 90s as well. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. You, the sea, you'd see it from most of the city. Yes. And Anna, for me, that was two things. That's limitations, that's geographic limitation, but it's also imagination. That yes, mm. your own experience ends here, but there's a lot beyond. You just can't mm. see it. Mm. Anna, for me, that's, I think, where it comes from. It's sort of knowing that I want more and maybe taking advantage of these sort of illusions and sort of turning this into a story. And mm. honestly, I know it's a different experience altogether, it may not be directly about Lebanon, but when I read your earlier piece in the New York Times, it was uh, back home, Ghazal, back home. Mm. Mm. And I, and for, read, for Syria, yeah, 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 yeah. For Syria, and I saw mm. the sea as when I was growing up as something of joy. And now all we think yeah. about is agony and tragedy. Yes. Yes, it's changed. It made me rethink my own childhood, even in Tripoli, of the beach and the sea, not being always the uh, the, the playful sort of uh, imagination you have as a as a child, and, I, and that's why I love that story. It's almost because and you, yeah. and you know and you know I've watched uh, on Megaphone News a few days ago. I watched uh, a short film shot in Tripoli. Mm. Uh, also about uh, the agony uh, in terms of sea uh, sea voyage that uh, a lot of people are departing on small boats right. from Tripoli, yeah. uh, trying to reach Cyprus. Uh, but then uh, in, in one boy, boat, uh, there were people who died. There were, I, I believe, two children died. And the then re- they were recently. sent. Yes, yes, yes. right. And they were, this is recent. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, this, uh, seeing this brought me back to that poem about Syria and Syrian refugees. Right. And I was looking uh, at people from Tripoli trying to, you know, and, and the, the guy interviewed was saying, uh, uh, one of the guys interviewed was saying, you know, we just wanted to like rest a little bit in Cyprus and then go uh, uh, to Germany or Italy, but we were surrounded by the Coast Guard or whatever, and they right. wouldn't let yeah. us, and they sent yeah. us back. Uh, so, yeah, and another one, uh, I think, uh, also from Tripoli, another, again, I think another megaphone video uh, uh went back, they were lost at sea for like eight days or whatever, and then they went back. And then it's it's very, very painful that uh, the journalist asks him uh, in the end, you know, would you do it again? And he says, <laughs> I would I would go, I would do it again, even in a pot. Like that's yeah. how, 
that that's how that's how uh, tragic uh, it has become and that's the sea like going back to yeah running away via the sea and this is yeah. not our it's not our generation no growing up even during a bad chapter in lebanese history yeah i i i didn't used to I, I didn't used to listen to such stories. I wasn't aware of such yeah. stories. No. We never sort of had that in our, it was never something we'd hear about or I don't think it was, yeah. it was, it was so rare. And the fact is you could get the Cyprus by sea, the sort of the standard way. But and some of- people went to Cyprus by sea uh, during the war from Tripoli for, we did that. I don't remember. I remember something again, speaking of storytelling and memory, it's so weird. Uh, a, I don't know if we went uh, by sea or not, but most probably we did. Uh, it was a, a year, I don't know what year, but there were Tripoli was quite intense. So my uncle and my dad and some neighbors decided to, to go to Cyprus, uh, to travel to Cyprus. And I think it was by sea. I think mm, so. Yeah, yeah. And I remember two things. Uh, a... I remember a whale, which never existed. I keep talking about a whale. I keep telling my mom, we were in the sea, we were in Cyprus. I was maybe two at the time, two and a half. And there was a big whale and we were afraid of it. And my mom says, there was no whale. <laughs> but, well, I see it's probably something I made up. It somehow w- worked in its way into my memory that when we flew, when we ran away to Cyprus, there was a whale. And I also remember the hotel and my mom getting dressed to go out and leaving me and my brother. Yeah. Uh, so, and the ice cream. I remember the ice cream as well. But you know, so, it's interesting because even then the sea is not negative. No, no, that's what I'm saying is that right. we ran away for like a, a, almost a mini vacation from the war and right. went back. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's sort of the, sort of the last the last passage in, in that poem. And I'll, I'll quote you to you again. I apologize for this. It's the last words. On our honeymoon, we kissed by the sea watched it rock the lights, the fishing boats to and fro back home. Mm. It's a tragic tale. It's not one of, Mm. there's no joy in the story whatsoever yet, yet. There's some duality here. Home, the coast, the sea, it's magic, it's beauty. And now, right now, even that is torment. Mm. I read that as something very personal, that even the, the, the sweeter nostalgia one can have in my own childhood growing up, that's being reinterpreted now. Mm. So even even the good stuff that one can look back on in Lebanon, it's fading. And for me, that's the biggest sort of loss. It's that it's harder and harder to tell a positive story about- I, and, and Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things, one of the highs that the first uh, period of the Thawra had was a, that possibilities were open again, uh, mentally. Yeah. yeah. Imagine that we, that we were able to uh, reimagine a possible Lebanon. And you know that, that the, the cartoonist, The Art of Boo, mm-hmm. uh, no, do you follow? I follow him no. on Instagram. Art of Boo. And, yeah. <laughs> And uh, during the first weeks of the Thawra, uh, he sketched a few sketches that were like Lebanon. I don't know, many, many, many years from now. I don't know if it's 2040 or 2050. I don't know. And the sketches were like included like, oh, now there's a tramway. Or uh, one very vivid sketch was like a girl asking her dad, dad, what's a disjuncteur? (laughs) 
that she had didn't have the she didn't even know what a disjuncteur <laughs> that's, was that's really good that's actually. how we had electricity so literally these sketches reimagined the possibilities that we could have right and it's so sad that when uh, uh, after after things went downhill that same cartoonist did a cartoon that then went viral again where a, a father and his son were looking at the stars and it says the answer is in the stars and the stars say emigrate. Oh, I don't know yeah. if you've seen that. No, I, I've seen this one. Yes, I didn't see the other That's one. That's the I same one. person yeah. who yeah, yeah, sketched yeah. the possibilities and then sketched the emigrate and you have both uh, now. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I think one of the positive things is that we were able to reimagine that was something was open for yeah. a moment. It was a very, very deep breath. And it was maybe like a, a needed sort of reawakening, but you would want sort of the blood to circulate. You would want a consistent heartbeat. Yeah, no, absolutely. It doesn't, doesn't seem yeah. like that. Yeah. And I, the worst thing in the world is to be a sad professor, sort of a, <laughs> a, 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 a perpetual pessimist. And I, I appreciate yeah. you're the optimist in the family. <laughs> maybe you do need sort of a counterweight. But I think yeah. uh, too much negativity in the in the Lebanese story that, that doesn't resonate either, even even when the facts may not be sort of positive. Yeah, the the yeah. facts doesn't don't add up to something positive. Right. Yeah, I might be just stupid. I mean, I don't know really, because <laughs> I mean, I, I'll tell you one thing. There's uh, it's it's uh, we're not sure yet, and we don't know. But there's a possibility that by the end of this academic year, we would leave Dubai and not going back to Beirut, but elsewhere. It's it's not sure yet. We don't know. And I was very sad to learn it, though I'm not very sad to leave Dubai. I think it's time for me to leave Dubai. Um, uh, my sadness was like, what do you mean we're not going back to Beirut? I thought we're going to leave here and go, right. go, ba go back to Beirut. Yeah. And I am putting on the show in front of uh, my family that I'm moving on and that I'm going to adapt and let's look at the schools and let's look at this and let's look at that and the possibilities of the city and yes and you know and even for me as an artist it's going to be better and 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 but deep down inside I am fast forwarding 10-15 years in my head to say but in 10-15 years I'll go back to Beirut you're literally planning to leave Dubai to another city and you're not even there. You're 15 years down the line, maybe going back to Beirut. So that kind of optimism doesn't always help because <laughs> you gotta, you gotta be where you are. You, you gotta be in the present. No, but you, you are illustrating the curse, which is that you can't replicate your home. I think that's the worst situation. Yet it defines a lot of us. You simply can't replicate it. I, I mean, I, I've lost many things in the process, even people that love me, that would want me to sort of forget this country altogether for many reasons, yet I can't. Uh, so mentioned this earlier, I mean, even professional sort of opportunities that come up, if they're not related to the story, no thanks. <laughs> By the way, this includes this includes somebody sort of serious about it, saying, "Why don't you do a history, um, do a walking tour in New York?" I'm like, "I'd be a poser. This is so inauthentic. It would be a. Yeah. I'd be so yeah. bad at it. And the truth is, I may not be that bad at it. I may mm. actually be okay, mm. but I refuse it. 
It is nothing to me. It's absolutely nothing. And I think that's part of it. You are maybe by design, and I know you've mentioned this in, 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 other, in other outlets, that you're not diaspora. Your children may become diaspora. Yes. Your yes. children, yeah, but you... Or maybe now I'm in the process of slowly becoming diaspora. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, exactly. And yeah. maybe time does that, actually. Mm. That said, though, uh, it doesn't seem like you are when you're betting on 10 years to return home. <laughs> I, and I, I actually called a friend. I called a friend. So I'm sorry. I'm into. I called a friend who used to live in Paris and uh, went back to uh, Beirut. She's 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 a generation older than me. When when I was at AUB, I met her, yeah. uh, and I called her to tell her. So when you went back to Beirut, <laughs> how did you feel? And how did? And do you think I could maybe in ten years? <laughs> I was like, I literally called my friend to predict my future for me. No one can does that. It's again, it's, uh, uh, you know, but having said that, I want to also say that even when I was in Lebanon, I also, on some level, I wanted to leave it. So on some level, I was always a person who wants to see the world as well, who wants to experience, but I want to have the possibility of returning to someone to some some place semi stable that could that could have me back uh, eventually it's not against leaving altogether sure sure uh, cuz i like roaming to a certain degree uh, it's painful but it also has it's it, it deepens your experience in a certain way uh, that's a different deepening than it would have been in Le it would have deepened in lebanon as well it would deepen it would have de deepened differently but i remember as a little girl in tripoli yeah. all i wanted to do was see the world i wanted to go to paris i wanted to see new york i wanted to see berlin i you know i i wanted to travel because yeah. it wasn't travel wasn't that possible for us you know right right no but that's but that's something i mean travel travel is travel you're not sort of you're not emigrating to Berlin, yes, where you have yes. to learn German and become a German yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, storyteller. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. so the wanderer. I think is by the by design. It's a healthy sort of uh, it's a healthy mm. trait uh, to see beyond your own borders and boundaries. But that and this is your your own personal view here. If you had financial stability and you had no chaos or uncertainty in Lebanon, would you be anywhere else? I don't think so. I think I don't think so because even even last year we were planning even mm. last year we were planning uh, our plan if there can be a plan uh, is that uh, you know in a few years uh, you'll go back uh, uh, to even if I don't come back go back you'll go back when they're when they're near university years and they, they'll go to university there mm, in mm, Lebanon mm, and you'll be with them and you'll go back right so that was that was the future that I saw I didn't see myself like uh, uh, immigrate uh, emigrating going certainly not going west um, yeah so so no uh, I think I think I would have uh, I think I would have or maybe I wouldn't have or maybe I would have come back hated it and then left it who knows right uh, it's not exactly a walk in the park when you're in Beirut either right even if and it's good times even yeah. if like you know I, I mean it should be said 
There are many reasons to love Tripoli. There are many reasons to not love Tripoli as well. And all oh, these yeah, places, no, yeah, all these places have their horrible sides. Oh, and I would never live in Tripoli permanently. Right. Beirut, yeah. maybe. Uh, yeah. I don't think I can. And my Tripolitans are going to hate me, maybe. But uh, <laughs> uh, I... I uh, I don't think so. Who knows? I might end up in a village somewhere in the end, you know, and uh, who, who knows? Like it, but, Anna, Anna, between you and me, I think the gossip of Tripoli is already enough to leave Tripoli. So, they, they, I mean, it's, it's a tough place. Eh, to, eh, even eh, when eh. everyone's happy, they're finding a way to, to, to express their personal preferences. You don't want that long term. But, but Beirut, you have that sort of wiggle room. You can create your own world. Bubble, bubble. Yeah. yeah and it gives you access to the world. It mm. keeps you at home, lets you lets you visit Tripoli when you're inclined, also lets you run away from Tripoli when you're inclined. Mm. And and I I think I'm like you. I'm betting on the future to to go back. Whether that's a possibility or not is something else. But I I do like to keep that in my mind that one day I could be happy and stable, and I could maybe spend the rest of my life there. Mm. I'll wrap but it up. also try to be in the present. Also, yes. do try to be in the present. Otherwise, I mean, it's it's it'll, it'll kill you. I mean, it's too much uh, to be in that state. Um, yeah, I think, right. I think you're right. I think there's a um, you don't want to relive whether it's shared pain, collective mm. sort of tragedy, or or trauma, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Yeah, you don't want to be in that night and day. That's true. You want to be able to navigate. You stayed up past midnight to deal with me, Honor. <laughs> it was it was a pleasure talking to you. It was a good conversation. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to hear you share your words. I uh, I, I often quote people to people on the podcast, but it's such a thrill to hear you uh, sharing your own your own uh, your own poetry. Uh, it's an thank honor you. for me. So thank you so much, and I hope sometime on maybe in the next few years, when we're both fed up with our life abroad, we cross paths in Beirut. And yeah, uh, I maybe, hope so too. I, I'd really like that. So thank you, Zena. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah. And this is the Beirut Banyan.